Our text words today will be from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Matthew 5, 8. As we approach the preaching of God's Word, let us look to the Lord again in prayer for His help in the preaching and the hearing of the Word. Let's pray. We worship You and praise You, the only true God, one holy, life-giving, consubstantial, and undivided Trinity. We worship You, O Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. We approach You through the merits of Christ, our High Priest and our Mediator who died and rose again for us and who represents us before the Father and who has given His Spirit unto us, the church, to teach us of all things. And we pray now, would You open the eyes of our understanding? Would You purge our consciences and cleanse our hearts? And would You renew us by the power of Your Spirit? Would You open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of Your Word And would you better fit our hearts and minds and prepare us for eternal glory as your people? And would you please bring sinners into this communion with you in Christ, even this very day, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our Lord Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For the last four Lord's Days, we've been considering the theme of human happiness. And we've seen, starting out in the 8th Psalm, that as a human, you are created with a dignity as being not only God's image bearer, but the very image of God. That man is created with a special dignity like no other creature to know God and enjoy and worship Him forever. Then we saw on the next Lord's Day that you were created for virtue. And we considered this even after the fall in the example of our brother in Christ, Joseph, in the book of Genesis and how God helped him to live a life of virtue for the glory of God, both moral and theological virtue and how that God calls us to live this way for his glory and for our happiness as his people. And then we saw the example of Job, the saint's happiness on earth, how that God expects us and commands us to manage created goods for His glory and honor and not for our selfish gain. And even if almost all the created goods are taken away from us and all we have left is our life, just like with Job, our health and everything we own is taken away, we still have a supernatural happiness in Christ. We have the beginning of eternal life that reaches back to us now, and this can never be taken away from God's people. We considered last Lord's Day the saints' happiness in final glory. How that when we enter into final glory after the final resurrection and after the final judgment... It's so great and so glorious, this happiness, this this full fulfillment. And we saw how we use the term happiness not in the modern way of just a, a good feeling that you have. Rather, we mean happiness in the old way that our forefathers meant it. It means so far that you are conformed to what God designed you to be as a creature and that God made and designed you as a human, body and soul, with one ultimate purpose, and that is to know God, to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And when you reach this final state in glory, it's so great, we saw last week, the only way we can really talk about it many times is to compare it with lesser things. It's greater than all the afflictions you can, you can face on earth. It's better than all the enjoyments on earth. It's even better than the preceding enjoyments in heaven. And we saw this hope of final glory. 
But last week we didn't really talk much about what this final glory is, what it consists of. That's what I want to focus on today. I mentioned earlier the movie that they put out in 1981 based on the true story of an Olympic athlete and missionary, Eric Liddell. He was a Scottish descendant. He grew up with his parents being missionaries in China. And in 1924, he competed in the Olympic Games, and as a runner, he won the gold medal in the 400-meter dash, Eric Liddell. One quote that they have from him in that movie, they say it's not original to him, they just put it in the movie, but still it captures the idea that we're getting at. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What does he mean by that God made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure? He's getting at something of human happiness, which is what we're talking about. He realized that God gave him certain common grace gifts for the art that he was involved in in this certain race. The art of competitive running. And that when he did that, which God designed and equipped him to do... There was a joy in it. There was a fulfillment in it. He's speaking of natural happiness. Well, today we're speaking of a far greater happiness. This is supernatural happiness. And if you could imagine the fulfillment that he experienced as an athlete when he crossed the finish line in 1924 in the Olympic Games and realizing his whole life has been leading up to this point, my whole life, my training, my experience, everything I've done up till now in life has led me to this one moment of victory, and I know God is the one who made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. Imagine the joy, imagine the fulfillment that He experienced in that. And there are great common grace fulfillments like this that God blesses us with. You've experienced this yourself, no doubt. Well, what we're talking about today... The happiness that we're describing today is when you get to the very end. The happiness he describes is a proximate good, a lesser good. Today we're not talking about lesser goods. We're not talking about at-hand goods, proximate goods. We're talking about the ultimate good, and that is the vision of God in final glory. There is nothing above this. There is nothing beyond this. And as a Christian, when you enter into final glory and you behold God and His glory, you will be overwhelmed and yet resting at the same time, entering your full rest in God, in Christ, by the Spirit, as you are fully aware this is why you're created. This is why you exist. This is what you were designed for. This is what your entire life, from the moment of your conception until now, in the eternal ages of glory, it was all leading to this. It's all for this. There's nothing beyond. There's nothing above this. This is the ultimate human happiness. You may know what it was like. I remember as a teenager, and you may have experienced this, laying in bed awake at night and wondering, why do I exist? Why am I even here? Why am I on earth? It might grip your heart as it did mine to realize if I don't fulfill my purpose in life, the purpose for which God created me, then my life is in vain. I'm wasting it. Well, I tell you, dear friend, this is why God created you. This is the ultimate happiness. 
And God holds before you, oh dear Christian, this hope of eternal glory once again today. And dear sinner, God holds before you this invitation to woo you and to invite you to Christ and to enter into this eternal happiness in Christ. Here in the Beatitudes, where we've read in Matthew chapter 5, when you hear beatitude, just think blessed, blessedness, that's what the word means. Jesus is pronouncing the blessedness of all those who are in Christ. And when you hear blessedness, think happiness. This is what we're talking of, the true and full sense of happiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, our Lord Jesus says. And here in this beatitude, he is describing the ultimate human happiness, the end for which you were created. You might wonder, as we talk today about the beatific vision, You might wonder, why haven't I heard a lot about the beatific vision? Why don't we talk about it today? Well, I'll tell you, our Reformed tradition, and all the way back through the Church of Christ through the centuries, it was was normal, and it, it was very much discussed, and they very much articulated it this way and and believed these truths and used the terminology of the beatific vision. But during the Enlightenment, we lost the idea that everything that's created is created with a nature. God created you as human with a certain nature. And your happiness is this. How far do you conform to that nature that God created you with? What are you in your being, in your nature? Also, we lost what they call teleology. That simply means the end for which. What is the end for which each creature was created? What's the end for which man was created? Why do you exist? What's the ultimate goal of all this? They lost that discussion. Many of our forebears in previous couple of centuries. And therefore, when you lose the end for which we exist... You lose sight of the end, which is the beatific vision. But by God's grace, as Christ's Spirit is still teaching the church, and He'll never stop until the end of the age, we're recovering these glorious truths from Holy Scripture, and it's a chorus of voices from our whole tradition that we'll hear from today who took hope in this blessed truth. Just as Benjamin Keach tells us, one of our particular Baptist forefathers, the fullness of the glory of heaven is contained in this covenant, the covenant of grace, or the, per- the perfect and full enjoyment of God, even the beatific vision. Keach is saying that the fullness of the glory of heaven consists in this, the beatific vision, what Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew 5.8. Christ is teaching us in the Beatitudes what true and full human happiness is and how we are to obtain it. Dear Christian, you need this hope today. We all need this hope to help us make it through trials, to help us to be further sanctified, to help us to keep our eyes on the Lord and to press toward this final goal and to persevere in hope and not lose hope. We need to hear of this hope And oh, dear sinner, you need to understand and hear these gracious invitations and the gracious message of all the glory and grace that's laid up for all those who come to faith in Christ to woo you and to attract you to this beautiful Savior and this grace that God has for you in Christ if you come to Christ. So with this in mind, our theme today is this. 
the beatific vision, man's ultimate happiness. The beatific vision, man's ultimate happiness. We'll see it in two basic thoughts. First of all, consider what it is. We'll consider what the beatific vision is. And secondly, we'll consider this question, will you experience it or not? First of all, consider what the beatific vision is. Our Lord Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This blessed vision is the saints' vision of God and glory that brings us to our ultimate happiness. Blessed here, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed speaks of this ultimate happiness. They shall see God speaks of this vision of God and glory. What kind of vision is this? Is it a vision of the eyes where we will see God in His essence with our physical eyes? Well, no, we know that that's not the case. Scripture clearly teaches us and texts like 1 John 4.12 Scripture says, no one has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 6.16, the apostle declares that God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Not only has no man ever seen God with his physical eyes, never seen God in his essence, it's impossible for man to see God with our physical eyes. So it's not talking about a sight of the eye. And yes, in glory, we will see our Lord Jesus Christ in His glorified humanity. His physical body, just as physical, just as human as our body. We will behold Him and we will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But what He is speaking of here goes beyond this to seeing the very essence of God. They shall see God, Jesus tells us. So what is this vision? Is it by the eyes of faith? We know it's not with the physical eyes. Is it by the eyes of faith in glory we'll see God? Well, no, we know we see Him that way now. We see God by faith now. We believe on Him whom having not seen... We love, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Moses, remember, he he believed on Him. He trusted in Him who is invisible. He saw Him who is invisible. He saw God by faith, by believing the truth of God. But this is not talking about the vision of faith and glory. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12-13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, But then, that is in final glory, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now why is that the greatest of these is love? Well, there are several reasons. Why is it love is greater than faith and hope? One reason is because when we get to glory, we will no longer need faith because we will not be walking by faith, but by sight. We will see our Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, we love. We will see Him. Why is it greater than hope? Why is love greater than hope? Because when we reach eternal glory, we won't be desiring to get to eternal glory like we do now. That's what hope is, reaching forward and desiring that we won't desire it anymore because we'll have it. 
will be there. But after faith and hope are no longer needed, love will remain. And forever we'll perfectly love God, reflecting back His love for us and radiating that love to one another perfectly forever and ever. We will love God, but in this we will no longer need faith. Faith will turn to sight. And Paul puts these two in opposition together in 2 Corinthians 5-7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Talking about this life. So faith is no longer needed in final glory. So this is not the vision of faith wherewith we'll see God in glory. Well then, what is this vision? They shall see God. What does our Lord Jesus mean here? Well, He told us exactly what he means in John 17 3 remember this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent this is eternal life knowing God in Christ this vision of God this knowing of God that he speaks of here blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God this is the seeing of knowing God. It's Think of sight. Think of perception. Think of perceiving and knowing. For instance, if there were a young man here and a young lady, and the young lady approaches a young man, and they're speaking, and he lets her know, he says to this young lady, he says, I'm seeing someone. I'm seeing someone. What does he mean? We see everybody all the time. We see everybody in the room. I'm seeing everybody in here. You go to town. You go to Walmart. You see 500 people. What does he mean I'm seeing someone? It means more than just physical sight, doesn't it? It means there's someone he is knowing in a way of relationship, romantic relationship, and it's deeper than just physical sight. There is, yes, a seeing of the eye, the physical eye. We've seen there's the seeing of faith. But there also is the seeing of the mind. Remember how we saw that the image of God consists in man, that man has intellect and will, which are faculties of your soul, the intellect, the mind. There is a seeing of the mind. This is what Jesus is speaking of here. And one of our Reformed forefathers, one of the Reformers, Peter Martyr Vermigli, put it this way. In eternal life, the essence of God will be known by the blessed, not by the senses, but by the soul or the mind. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 13 as we read when he's emphasizing that this will be an unmediated vision. There will be nothing between Nothing between us and God. Unmediated means it's, it's not mediated to us by something or someone else. Rather, it is a direct vision of God that Jesus is speaking of here. And Paul, remember, told us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's kind of like this. You who are married, remember when you were engaged, you were courting who is now your spouse. Maybe it was a long distance relationship and you communicated through letters or through emails or text. I'm sure you men had a photograph of your beloved in your lunchbox at work. And you communed with her through those 
mediums through those. It was not an immediate relationship. It was a mediator relationship mediated through signs. That picture, that was not your fiancé. It's a sign of your fiancé. That letter she wrote you, that's not your fiancé. It's a sign of your fiancé. The, even the telephone conversation, or today the FaceTime conversation, that's not your spouse. You're not with them in person. You're communi- communicating through way of mediation. Think of what that was like compared to When you come together and you're married and you're with one another and you live together as one, you become one flesh. Now your knowledge of one another is not at that distance that it was before. Now it is a completely, yes, it's the same one that you're knowing, but in a completely new way. This is a pitifully deficient illustration any illustration we could use is going to be deficient these things are beyond our understanding but it gets at something of what our lord is speaking about here in this unmediated vision when we enter into this beatific vision in glory puritan william perkins put it this way this sight of the mind is imperfect in this life and perfect in the light to come or the life to come In this life, the mind knows God's essence or substance only by the effects as by His Word and sacraments and by His creatures. The perfect vision of God is reserved to the life to come where God's elect shall see Him in regard of His substance. For, as John said, 1 John 3, 2, we shall see Him as He is. So as we hear the Word preached... We see God, meaning we know God in the truth of the Word preached to us. As we partake of the sacraments, especially regularly the Lord's Supper, we see or know God through the sacraments and the Word that is preached with them. We behold the glory of God in all of creation, but in the beatific vision, there will be a direct knowledge of God in a way that we have never experienced before. And we confess this truth in our second London Confession 31.1. We confess that in the intermediate state, that means when a loved one dies and goes to be with the Lord, our dear brothers and sisters, even in the past few years that I've been here, who have passed away, they've gone to be with the Lord, their soul is with the Lord in heaven. They're in the intermediate state. They're in between this life and the final glory. We confess concerning this. This is what we believe Scripture teaches. Second London, Confession of Faith 31.1, our confession, we say it this way. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. As Baptists, we have a shorter catechism, but we did not make a larger catechism like the Westminster Larger Catechism. But the truth, we confess, is based on the same core truths as the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it states it this way in question 90 concerning the final state, final glory, after the final judgment. This is what saints will experience. It says it this way, in final glory, the saints will be filled with unconceivable joys 
made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. We're speaking here of the immediate vision of God. Peter Martyr Vermigli put it this way, Christ gave an example of this condition in his transfiguration when his face shone like the sun. This splendor flows into the bodies of the blessed from their souls, which will see God not in a mirror dimly, but face to face. They will conceive such happiness and joy from this sight that it will overflow into their bodies, just as the soul and the spirit make for a smiling face and cause the body to glow. So as you, in final glory, experience this unmediated vision of God, this knowledge of God to a capacity you never have known God before, yes, you know God now, but you'll know Him to such a greater degree and in such a greater way than you can even comprehend right now. And in this seeing of the mind, seeing God, Your entire being will be filled with unexplainable, inexpressible joy forever. It's an unmediated vision. It's a satisfying vision. It perfects us as humans to the ultimate happiness. Think about it like this. When we talk about perfection, think about a little baby. Our little one-year-old boy, Marshall, Potentially, right now, he's a man. He's a full-grown man, potentially. That's his, what he has potential to be. And as he grows, he's perfected more and more in his nature, perfected into a full-grown man. And by that time, he has reached the perfection that he is attaining unto concerning his natural state as a full-grown man. Well, in glory, all of us, the most mature, the most wise, the most aged believer in this world is yet but an infant in comparison to the perfected satisfaction you will experience in the beatific vision in glory as you are perfected in this way. Our one-year-old has a capacity to love. He already loves his parents. He has a tiny little capacity to to love. I have a much larger capacity to love him. I have a much more ability to love him than he has to love me. But he does have a small capacity to love me. The older he gets, the more capacity he will be able to love me. And in glory, dear believer, however you love God now will be expanded to the full perfection, the full limits of your created nature so that with your entire being you will love and know and enjoy God. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it this way, they shall see God, a pleasant prospect. This the divines call the beatific vision at the day when the veil will be pulled off and God will show himself in all his glory to the soul as a king on a day of coronation shows himself in all his royalty and magnificence. This sight of God will be the heaven of heaven. Think about the enjoyment and glory of all heaven. This is the heaven of heaven itself. 
God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. God made me to know Him and enjoy Him forever, to glorify Him forever. And when you enter the beatific vision, you will realize this, and you will have reached your final goal, your final purpose, your ultimate happiness. As Augustine said, our souls are restless until we find rest in Thee. You will find this rest in God, oh dear believer, and it will be a fully satisfying vision. Life eternal, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. The Puritan Edward Lay put it this way, In glory the mind shall have all intellectual virtues, the will and affections all moral virtues, and that in the highest degree they are capable of. Their understanding in a single glance shall know all that can be known. The will shall be fully satisfied with God. The conscience filled with peace. The affections of love and joy shall have their full content. The memory shall represent to you perpetually all the good that God ever did for you. What a satisfying vision this will be. Not only is it an unmediated and a satisfying vision, this beatific vision is a Christ-led vision. Christ leads us into it. And it's by our Lord Jesus Christ, by participation in His own beatific vision, Christ as man has entered His beatific vision whereby He beholds God and is supremely happy in God. Yes, we're in the realm of mystery because Jesus Christ is the one person who is truly God in His divinity and truly man in His humanity. Imagine what a beatific vision He has. Imagine what joy with which He beholds the essence of God with the mind and what joy He's filled with. You will obtain your beatific vision, dear believer, by participation in Christ's own beatific vision. Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. At that day as you enter into the Christ's light and glory, and you participate in His vision of God and this light brings you into the full participation in that light. That's how you will attain this vision. It's kind of like this. Years ago as a teenager, I was with my dad in Kenya, Africa. We're on the southeast coast of Kenya near Mombasa, way out in a village in the middle of nowhere, way up on top of a mountain. My dad was preaching an evangelistic meeting there. And they had already begun to sing. And if you ever heard the singing, it's, it's beautiful. And all the children were singing. And they were preparing to start the meeting. And my friend there that's from Kenya, his name was Dixon. He took me by the hand and he led me over to the edge of that mountain. And you could see through those beautiful trees. It was like a jungle there. And I didn't realize, but he took me to a vista there. You could see all the way to the Indian Ocean. You could see a ship going by out there. And just the whole experience of being on top of that mountain and the jubilant singing and looking at that vision across that, across that landscape... It was so breathtaking and so striking, I've never forgotten it 25 years later. 
still in my mind. My friend took me by the hand and he led me into that vision. He led me to the vantage point to see and behold that beauty. Oh, dear believer in final glory, your Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, He'll stretch out that nail-pierced hand and take you by the hand and He will lead you into this beatific vision, into your ultimate happiness. And it will be by His person and work and by participation in His own beatific vision, you will attain this ultimate happiness. Dear Christian, since you will behold God in the beatific vision, behold your God now by faith. Since you will behold Him then by sight of the mind, behold Him now by faith. Behold Him in the Word as the Word is preached to you Lord's Day after Lord's Day. We live in a day when we have access to so many audio files, podcasts, and video clips, and all the different ways that we hear different things. And it's good. Some of those resources can be good and helpful. But the sermon that is preached on Lord's Day is not one audio clip among many. It is the means that God uses to convert sinners in this age. It is the supreme means of grace. And this is not an audio lecture for you to listen to and obtain information. This is the very Christ of glory by His Spirit speaking to you in real time through the infallible Word not just for your information, but for your transformation. Oh, dear Christian, every Lord's Day, come with an eager mind, an eager heart to behold your God by faith as you listen to the preached Word, as you meditate upon the Word daily. Do it as you partake of the sacraments, especially in the Lord's Supper. Behold your God by faith now, because you'll behold Him by sight in glory. No, dear believer, because you will see God in this beatific vision, you will reach your ultimate happiness. Press on now and take hope now. You may be weary. Dear believer, are you, are you, are you discouraged? Do you face struggles and pains and difficulties? Do you sometimes feel like giving up? Well, I remind you, you're going to reach your ultimate happiness for every one of you in Christ. I encourage you to take hope in this and press on. Our friend Judah just entered the U.S. Marine Corps last week. And right now, there's no telling what he's going through, what kind of difficulties he's going through. He probably hadn't, he had no way of comprehending what all he signed up for when he joined the U.S. Marine Corps. He's underneath the boot of the United States Marine Corps and their authority right now as they break him down to nothing so they can rebuild him the way they want to rebuild him. They're running him till he drops. They're running him on sleep deprivation. They're running him on just enough food to survive. They're yelling and screaming in his face. They're knocking him down. They're messing with his mind. They're breaking him down to nothing. He thought he was something. Now they're breaking him down to nothing so they can make him into a U.S. Marine. That's exactly what they do. And in all likelihood, our friend Judah will persevere through all of it. You know why? Because he has the end in mind, the immediate end, this proximate end, which is the glory of the U.S. Marine Corps. 
the glory of being given the title of Marine. He keeps that in mind. He presses towards that, and he can go through all these difficulties now because his hope is in that coming graduation day after his basic training. Oh, dear Christian, let this common grace analogy spur you on as you go through the boot camp of this life and no telling how God may break you down in His sovereign wisdom and goodness and grace before you get to glory. But always remember this, keep the end in mind. You will reach your ultimate happiness in the beatific vision and everything God puts you through in this life is preparing you for this day. Oh, take heart and press on. So we've seen, firstly, what is the beatific vision. Secondly, find out if you'll experience the beatific vision or not. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not everybody who's going to see God. Not everybody's going to enter the beatific vision. It's not like the popular notion in America today, like R.C. Sproul said, justification by death, as long as you die, that means you went to heaven. Oh no, dear friend, if you're not pure of heart, you will not go to heaven. You will not behold God in His glory. It's only the pure of heart. Know how it breaks my heart today. Some of you in this very room, you'll never see God in the beatific vision. The direction you're headed You're still in your sins instead of in Christ. You're still headed straight the direction of hell just as quick as you can get there. You'll never see this vision. Oh, dear friend, this is a call to you to turn. Turn and trust in Christ. Otherwise, our Lord tells you exactly what you'll hear at the last day. He pronounces blessing on all those in Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. But to you, dear sinner, He does not pronounce blessedness at the end, but cursing, as Jesus will say to those on His left hand, depart from Me, you cursed. The opposite of blessed. Depart from Me, you cursed. Into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You'll be punished with everlasting fire, he tells us the Second Thessalonians, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. Ecclesiastes tells us that the tree, as it falls, so shall it lie. You're impure in heart now. You're in your sins now. When you die without Christ, you'll be that way forever. And as we read in Revelation 22:11, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. This will be a condition throughout eternity. You die in the filth of sin as a filthy-hearted sinner, and you'll remain filthy for eternity, and you'll never enjoy this ultimate happiness. You'll enjoy the exact opposite, or rather, you'll experience the exact opposite. You'll experience the most extreme torment of soul and the flames of hell forever, apart from all goodness of God and from all enjoyment of God. You must be pure in heart if you will see God. It's only the pure in heart our Lord Jesus teaches us. The pure in heart shall see God. Now when He speaks of this heart purity, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is a comprehensive heart purity. 
This is the gift of Almighty God who gives you this pure heart. This is something you cannot do for yourself, something you cannot produce in yourself. It's comprehensive. It, it reaches down to the core of your being. And this is taught throughout all Scripture. How is it that you gain this comprehensively pure heart, this heart purity? Well, Scripture teaches us that when you trust in Christ by faith, you take Christ as your Savior, this pure Savior who died for us impure sinners, this pure Savior purifies your heart when you believe by faith. This is what Acts 15 tells us, 15, 8, and 9. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, speaking of the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Oh, you must have your heart purified by faith in Christ. When Jesus was here on earth, remember... He healed many people who were corrupted in their flesh, such as lepers with oozing sores all over their bodies, oozing, stinking sores. They were walking dead men. Nobody could heal them. And a Jewish priest was not allowed to touch them. Why? Because when that holy priest touched that unholy corruption of that leprosy, he would be defiled by it. The unholy defilement, the impurity would transfer the priest and he would be defiled. But yet our Lord Jesus Christ reached forth and touched people like this. Lepers and those defiled in sin and sickness. But when Jesus touched them, the impurity did not transfer to Christ. Rather, the purity of Christ, who is the only man perfectly pure of heart, that perfect purity transferred to them. Oh, receive the perfect purity of Christ, dear sinner. He reaches out His hand to you to touch you. Oh, take His hand. Oh, trust Him, dear sinner, this very moment. You gain this comprehensively pure heart by God's work in you. God the Holy Spirit purifies your heart when you're saved, when you trust in Christ. When God sovereignly regenerates you and brings you to life. The Holy Spirit purifies your heart in every part. He purifies your mind and you think differently about sin than you did before. You who are saved can testify of this. He purifies your conscience as Hebrews 10 tells us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Holy Spirit will purify your conscience. So that now it bothers you when you sin. It bothers you in a way that it didn't before. In the past, you, you only were sorry for your sins when you got caught. You got in trouble for it or it cost you something. Now, as a Christian, God purifies your conscience. And when you go back and sin, it makes you sick. You hate it and you do not think the same way about it anymore. God purifies your heart in purifying your will, and now you desire not to sin, and you purpose not to sin as a Christian. Psalm 45 tells us about our Lord Jesus. It says of Him, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. And when the Spirit of Christ purifies your heart, He gives you a new heart, and now you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. In a way you didn't before. He purifies 
your heart. He purifies your affections and you feel and respond differently to sin than you did before. And as a Christian, we hear this and we hear the pure in heart shall see God and we cry out and we lament and you say, dear Christian, and I say, how will I ever see God? I'm so impure of heart. I'm so full of the inward impurity of sin. Yes, it grieves me. Yes, I love righteousness. And I hate sin, but I still sin. And I still, sometimes I'm so conscious of my own sins, it sickens me and it it horrifies me to see and to know just how sinful I still am and just how impure my heart still is. We could lose hope and say, well, will I ever see God in the beatific vision? But let me encourage you, dear believer, it's not just a comprehensive heart purity Jesus is speaking of. It's a limited heart purity in this life. It is limited. You're not going to be sinlessly perfect in this life. If this were the case, then Apostle Paul would have not even had any hope. He would have been hell-bound because Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. Remember he said, when I would do good, evil is present with me. And he said there, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul himself cried out because of the impurity, the remaining sin in his own heart. We have to wait till final glory to have full heart purity. You may say, well, I sometimes feel so defiled, so impure in heart, so maybe I won't won't see the beatific vision. Maybe I won't enter into glory. Well, I remind you, dear friend, that that in itself is evidence that you do have a pure heart. If you didn't have a pure heart, you wouldn't care about the purity of your heart. Kind of like if one of our children is out running and playing in the dirt and the mud, he doesn't care, he's having a blast. He's got dirt and mud from head to toe. He gets some more dirt on him, it's no big deal, he doesn't even notice it. But you take mama and her Sunday best and one of the kids runs by and splashes mud, even a little bit of mud on her and it's offensive, it's intolerable. Why? She is clean and so that filth bothers her. The fact that the filth of sin bothers you, dear friend, and I don't mean just when you get caught, I mean when it's just you and God alone and it bothers you and you weep over your sins and you grieve over your sins and you say, I wish I hadn't have done that. If I had the best day on earth, it'd be a day with no sin. If that's your heart, oh yeah, you have still remaining defilement of heart, but you're of a pure heart. It's a pure heart that experiences defilement of sin like you are, dear believer. That's what John taught us in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. God is light, and when you are united to God in Christ, you are more sensitive about your sin than you were before you were saved. And John says here, 
A few verses later, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You're walking in the light. You see your own defilement. You lament and you grieve over it. You seek to be cleansed from it. But you more and more, the more you walk in God's light, the more you see your own corruption. That's not evidence of you being lost without Christ. That's the opposite. It's evidence that you are walking in the light of God in Christ. It's kind of like this. My dad tells about our granny bishop years and years ago on Green River there in the Appalachian Mountains. Her household was the first one to obtain electricity. Granny bishop always kept an immaculately clean house. She was sweeping and cleaning and dusting all the time. And all the neighbors gathered in her house that day when they had hooked up the electricity and they were going to plug in the first light bulb that had ever burned on Green River. All the neighbors were gathered. They turned on that light bulb, and she had been used to lighting the house with kerosene lanterns, which were much more dim. That light bulb turned on and flooded the room with light. You know what Granny Bishop said? She didn't say, oh, wow, look at that beautiful light. Oh, how wonderful. No, she said, oh, my, look how dirty my house is. The light showed corruption and defilement that she had not yet seen before. As you come into the light of God's glory, you will see remaining sin in your heart. You will be more sensitive about the heart impurity. This is evidence you are saved. As A.W. Pink put it, the more pure the heart be, the more conscious it becomes of indwelling filth, and the more it grieves over it. A pure heart is one which makes us conscious of foul thoughts, vile imaginations, and evil desires. It is the one that mourns over pride and discontent, unbelief and coldness of affection, and weeps in secret over unholiness. The fact that you are offended and you're grieved and you lament at your heart's impurity is evidence. God in Christ has given you a pure heart. Oh, dear Christian, since God has made you pure of heart, cultivate heart purity. Just like our friend Judah going into the U.S. Marine Corps and now in basic training, as we mentioned last week, as he aligned his entire life, his diet, his exercise, his sleep, everything he does, he aligned to that one goal, preparing to go into basic training. And right now, his entire existence, his entire life, Morning, noon, and night is aligned toward that one goal of graduation day and becoming a U.S. Marine. This is exactly what Scripture teaches us spiritually as we've seen in 1 John 3, 2, and 3. This coming glory of the beatific vision motivates us now. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. That's the beatific vision. Now what does John say to do about it? He says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. The fact that you in perfect heart purity are going to behold God and be supremely happy, this motivates you, dear Christian. This is what you do about it right this minute. 
Every day next week, every moment of every day, you are to seek to purify yourself and to prepare yourself for this day. Align your entire life toward it. Just like the bride-to-be who has the wedding date and everything she does, she's dieting, she's trying to lose weight, she's picking out that dress, she's doing everything to beautify herself, she's making arrangements, she's ordering her entire life toward that wedding day. This is one great purpose of this hope of the beatific vision, old dear Christian, as Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Dear Christian, you will shine forth and you will enjoy the perfect vision of God and glory. Now live like it and act like it by the grace of God and by the help of the Spirit and looking unto Jesus Christ. As John Bunyan said, if you would be better satisfied what the beatific vision means, my request is that you would go and live holy and you will see. Dear sinner today, those of you still without Christ, you're the one I'm most worried about today. I warn you that if you love sin and that if you're comfortable in sin, you might have been baptized, you might be on a church roll, you might call yourself a Christian, but if you love sin, if you're comfortable in sin, the only time you're sorry is when you get caught. You're dirty-hearted and not pure-hearted. That characterizes your life. You will not see God. The beatific vision. I remind you that according to Scripture, you're defiled. You're guilty. You're condemned. You live in the darkness. You live in the filth. It's like Rolf Barnard said years ago, an old Reformed Baptist evangelist, somebody came to him after this preaching and said, I want to give my heart to Jesus. And he said, what would Jesus want with that dirty, rotten, ungodly heart of yours? They said, well, I want to give Jesus my heart. He said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. He said, oh, okay, well, now we can get somewhere. Now there's hope for you. It's not that we're coming to give God something. It's that We're defiled in every part. We need Him to touch us. We need Him to give to us. Oh, dear sinner, this pure-hearted Savior is willing to give you a pure heart. And I warn you, dear sinner, if you start to feel the defilement of your heart and realize your sin, I warn you that there is such a thing as false cleansing of your own heart, a false purifying of heart. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, part of the people around in that day were the Pharisees, and they were experts at making clean the outside. He compared them to a casket that on the outside it's beautiful, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. He compared them to a dish that is beautiful outside, but inside it's, it's filthy. 
This is how you are, dear sinner. And when you begin to be convicted of your sins and you feel your heart impurity, you can look around and you'll say, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that guy wallowing out there in the ditch. At least I'm not as bad as that person or that person. You can always point to somebody else. But in the light of God Himself, oh, dear friend, do you see how defiled you are? And there is no escaping it. And what you need is not the waters of a little bit of of a religious outward show what you need is the very cleansing of Jesus Christ that the prophet spoke of that in that day there will be a fountain open for the cleansing of sin and there as Jesus Christ died on the cross and as he had given up his spirit and as that soldier pierced him with the spear and blood and water flowed out this is the fountain open for the cleansing of your sins dear sinner oh trust in Jesus Christ this very moment Oh, impure sinner, defiled sinner, come to this perfect, pure, and holy Savior. And God has promised in the new covenant that when you come to Christ, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He promises in the new covenant, I'll take the heart of stone out of you and I'll give you a new heart and I'll give you my spirit. He promises you a new heart this very day. And He promises you the eternal happiness, the only true and full happiness you can ever know, and that is this eternal vision of the glory of God forever. Oh, come to Christ now and enter into this happiness. Amen.